as a church, we are asking big questions. Uh, and, and this originally started as a conversation about what does it mean to be the church? But as soon as you ask that question, you find that that does not, cannot be separated from the question, what does it mean to be a disciple? These two things are something that Jesus never intended to pull apart. So as we have a conversation that at first you might think, well, it's just, like, just about the structure of the church, it's really not at all. Um, it's about what it means to be a disciple together with other disciples. What kind of a culture do we create? Um, and really, what's at the heart of our faith? So the question, what, what ought our churches be founded on? And how do we practice community in ways that really work? Because to be honest, we're seeing over and over again ways of being the church that don't work. That leave people wounded. That miss the big picture of Jesus' heart, maybe, that um, expose something that looks a lot more like, I don't know, um, a CEO-run big business than a, a, a group of ragtag fishermen, tax collectors, and other unnamed people starting a movement that changed the world. And so... Uh, so Sometimes we can feel like church is just kind of a game in, in this world where you, you, you've been doing it maybe for a decent port of, portion of your life and so you go through the motions because that's just what you do. And uh, yeah, you know, it lacks integrity sometimes with how you feel or it lacks power. Uh, but it's just what we're supposed to do. But what that does is it actually lacks goodness and honesty and real connection that transforms us. So much of what it seems to be central to living well with God, seems to be missing from our daily lives and our community lives often. So we're going to talk about what Jesus came to start and what Jesus came to stop, <laughs> uh, which are connected, and maybe how to keep moving to make our local church this expression, which is you. There is no church outside of you and me and the person next to you. We're going to talk about what it means to keep this church moving as beautifully and healthy and honestly as it can be as we walk with Jesus. So we're going to try to talk plainly about it all um, and, and learn about some real discipleship. To do that, we have to talk about some of the things that Jesus calls out as toxic. Okay? Uh, Philip Yancey, in uh, a really beautiful uh, transformative book called What's So Amazing About Grace, he tells a, a simple story of an instance where someone asked a, uh, a prostituted woman who was trapped in addiction if she had ever thought of going to the church for help, for support. And what her response was, was, why would I go there? I was already feeling terrible about myself. They just make me feel worse. So I'm going to talk today about the paradigms that we use to work out who is in and who is out within the church world and within community. All right? All um, right. So the jumping off point is a bit intense. Uh, it's Jesus' words in Luke 11. And Jesus uh, has been invited to a, a Pharisee's house and uh, accepts the invitation. Important to notice, accepts the invitation. All right, sometimes we think that Jesus was so anti-Pharisee that he was like, I want nothing to do with you. But he frequently found himself in the presence of Pharisees. Okay? He just had very intentional things to say to them. But... When he was invited in, he joined, and often what he was doing, others seemed to want to join in too, or at least explore. So, um, so what, it, what ends up happening in Luke 11 is, uh, is this guy invites Jesus over to his house, 
And um, when Jesus gets there, Jesus doesn't wash before the meal. Okay? Now, we can look at this and say, that's not a good hygiene choice, Jesus. However, Jesus always knows what he's doing, as we find out the more we read in the Gospels. And he wants to be noticed for his poor hygiene. He's actually a lot more than that. But this was not, as far as we can tell, not a ceremonial thing, just a, a regular practice. But they noticed, but there was so much regarding purification and cleanliness that, uh, that there was plenty of overlap. But the point being, the Pharisee notices this. And the Pharisee was surprised, we're told in Luke 11, verse 38, um, when he noticed that Jesus didn't wash before the meal. And then Jesus says these words, when they say, when he, he becomes aware that they noticed, he says, now, then you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, akin to washing hands before a meal, right? You look clean, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people. Did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, he challenges them. Be generous to the poor, because what was inside of them was selfishness and, and greed. Be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. In, in other words, let your insides match your outsides, because you're very concerned about the external appearance. Okay? And, and he continues to kind of lambast the Pharisees. And he says a couple things um, where some other people... Oh, oh, I'm sorry, let's keep going here. Woe to you, Pharisees, he continues on, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs. Very particular, meticulous tithing that they were called to do. You do all of these things that are asked of you that you can measure very, very well. All the other kinds of garden herbs. So in other words, they give a portion of every single thing that they get to God, which was exactly what holiness was supposed to look like according to the law. But you neglect justice and the love of God. I, I, I think this is really fascinating because we can, we can boil this down and say, well, Jesus is just giving them a new list of things to do. But then Jesus adds, you neglect justice and the love of God. You neglect the love of God, which is this weird, pervasive, you can't define it by just a simple action. It's something that's deeper within. And he says, you're missing that. There's a major, major problem here. Um, you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. It's great that your external appearances match some things that are good to be doing. But you're totally missing out on this other thing. And it continues, and he continues on. And then a few verses later in verse 45, one of the experts in the law, a slightly different category, scribes and Pharisees, um, a slightly different category says, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. And Jesus turns and goes, And you! <laughs> Sometimes it's better just to keep your mouth shut and listen when you're in the presence of Jesus. Um, and you, experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. You load people down with burdens they can hardly carry and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Jesus, in this instance, is beginning to address the issue of, of, of legalism and of what we're going to call in a few minutes bounded set approaches to faith. And, and when he does this, 
we see two problems emerging with legalism. And, and by the way, we're going to take this thing full circle. So if you feel like, well, I, I know what legalism is. That's not, you know, I'm against it. Okay, that's good. That's good. Um, but just, just hang with us here because there's a lot of things that we need to first own and then see how this is maybe more pervasive than we think. So the first thing is that and as we look at this story, the, the, one of the problems with legalism is that legalism is often a veil for sin. When Jesus calls the inside and the outside of the cup out, he's saying, listen, often what ends up happening is because the external focus is so great, what happens beyond that that nobody can see as well is deeply, deeply damaging and hurtful and sinful. And so one of the problems with this this clearly defined perfect exterior is that it hides something dark. And can we just be honest that we're seeing this happen every week right now in God's church? All right? What is occurring right now in the Southern Baptist Convention is what power and status does In God's church. The more righteous and holy and powerful and removed people are, the higher likelihood that something can be hiding deep within the surface that is damaging lives. And the reckoning that's happening right now in God's church ought to be happening. It's not something that should be mourned. It's something that is finally being brought to light that should have been brought to light long ago. And so while we might be embarrassed to see all of the lack of integrity that's emerging from God's church, it is necessary if we want to be a body globally and nationally that actually looks and reflects like Jesus. These things have to be brought to light. They have to be dealt with. And they should be. They should have been even before this. So we understand that often when an external, external focus is all that you see, power, authority, status, then often what's behind it, Jesus says to these Pharisees, is there's all sorts of dirtiness on the inside of the cup and you're neglecting all of that. Okay. Um, So, what happens though if you're actually maybe doing the things, doing all the external holy things, kind of successfully, and you're you're not hiding something deep, maybe you just have committed your life to following all of the rules really, really well. Jesus actually says this can be problematic too because of what ends up happening. Because what ends up happening is is if your emphasis on getting all the rules right is all the places that your mind and your heart is, then you actually make it harder for others to join in. You're setting up faith as this ever-growing list of rules that you need to adhere to and that other people have to adhere to if they are to gain entry. All right? And once you start on that path, I'm telling you, your list will keep growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. And all of your time will be taken up making sure that you're not breaking the law. And Jesus says, you're missing the point of what this whole thing is. All right? So the big problem across both is that the emphasis of the external comes at the neglect of the internal. Let's use repetition for emphasis. Let's say that again. The emphasis of the external comes at the neglect of the internal. The heart hasn't changed even if the exterior is spiffy. That's my grandparents used to use that word all the time. Some of you familiar with that word? I grew up, man. I grew up getting ready for church and looking spiffy. Um, 
It must have been inherited by my parents because I wasn't in the home of my grandparents too often when I was actually getting ready for, for church. So I think it was a, one, a couple generations of spiffiness. Um, all right, where were we? I don't remember. I got so excited about spiffy. Okay, all right. Um, okay, so, so it is easy to decry legalism because many of you actually have kind of walked through experiences with that and found it to be lacking and said, that's not the kind of faith I want. But until we understand the root of what is at the heart of legalism, we won't actually be able to get away from it and embrace what Jesus has for us. And so, so we won't be able to see how maybe we still have opportunities to really grow into something different in creating God's church. So during these weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be interacting with and exploring the work of, uh, of Mark Baker, which is one of my old uh, California seminary professors. And fun fact that I had no idea about, my old seminary president, Terry Brensinger, is visiting today and so, uh, from California. And so it's wonderful to have him and his family, who are friends of the Neufelds, and, uh, and together. So I didn't set this up that I was going to be using Mark's content, um, Terry, while, uh, while you were visiting. So it's, it's kind of fun. Um, but to be honest, lately I'm a little bit sick of hearing my own voice. Just going to lay it out there. And so I think I've really enjoyed having some of our other pastors up here um, with Dwayne and Sabrina leading and stuff. And I want to make sure that we're hearing more than just my perspectives. So we're going to be doing that in a number of different ways throughout the summer. But uh, this week and next week I'm going to share some so short videos from Mark that uh, give some insight. But he's just finished a book uh, called Centered Set Church. And we're going to be talking about that in just a moment. And so I'm going to uh, just play about eight minutes of him telling his own story of experiencing legalism and what his journey was and why getting away from one thing did not mean fixing the problem completely. Okay? So um, Mark is an Anabaptist theologian and a former missionary in Honduras. Um, and he teaches ethics and New Testament theology. And he's also just a really, really good guy. Uh, but so we're asking the question of how might legalism, we saw some glimpse from Jesus there, but how might it play out today? And is the opposite approach the best solution? All right, so those are the questions that we're asking. Um, so Mark's going to share his journey, and he's going to help give some language framework for us to reflect on regarding what he calls line drawing, and how even if we think we've got it figured out, we can fall into our own pharisaical traps. All right, so here's his story, and uh, we'll... Hop right into it. And I think two, let's see, we should be good to go right now. While riding home from church when I was six years old, I looked disdainfully at people who were mowing their lawns because I had learned that Christians did not work on Sunday. This provided me a clear way of labeling some people as non-Christians. I would draw a neat line between those who belonged to my religion and those who did not. I had the security of knowing that I was in. As I grew older, I continued to derive security from the lines I drew. As a teenager, I felt morally superior because in contrast to those around me, I didn't cheat on tests, steal on the job, drink, dance, swear smoke or do drugs. I was in, a good Christian. Those on the other side of the line clearly were not. 
Well, I headed off to college, a Christian college, and two things led me to rethink my rules and the lines I made. The first was I happened to visit a church that had a longer list of rules than mine. So there I was sitting in my pew as the church filled up and I observed all the males had on white shirts and ties. I didn't. My hair was 1970s stylishly long, theirs was 1950s short. I felt shame for not complying with their rules. I was on the wrong side of their line. I imagined them looking at me and thinking just what I had thought of people on the wrong side of lines I had drawn. Had I made others feel like this? I didn't like it. At the same time, I met some Christians who had a shorter list of rules than I did. They drank occasionally, enjoyed dancing, and I faced a dilemma. My definition of Christianity told me that these people couldn't be Christians. In other ways, though, I recognized their faith to be more mature than my own. So I either had to change my definition of a Christian or refuse to accept these friends as Christians. What to do? I concluded that legalism was the problem, putting too much focus on rules and enforcing them strictly. The solution seemed obvious. Get rid of the rules, or at least not have so many specific and strict ones. I did that. But had I really changed? True, I was less legalistic, but was I less judgmental? I immediately drew new lines. And what do you think was the first one? I became very critical of legalistic Christians. They were the ones who were not good Christians. Well, over the next seven years, I continued changing and embraced new expressions of Christian discipleship. A simple lifestyle, total commitment to Jesus, openness to gifts of the Spirit, and commitment to social justice. I continually drew new lines or added new criteria to the lines I used to define what was a good Christian. I thought I'd come a long way from my high school legalism until I sat in a Bible study and watched the teacher draw a diagram of my life on the board. He drew a line that angled uphill and said, many evangelical students see their life as a progression from the legalism of their youth to a more mature Christianity which stresses issues of lifestyle and justice, explores authentic Christianity. It appears they have moved forward. Then he drew a circle on the board. And at different points, he wrote legalism, simple lifestyle, freedom to drink, issues of justice. He pointed to the circle and he said, they move along, but they're not going anywhere. They just change one means of judging themselves as superior for another. I sat there stunned. Perhaps I had not progressed as far as I thought. I saw that I had used the broadening of my faith perspective in the same way I'd used the legalism of my youth, to draw lines between myself and others. Just as I'd looked down on those who mowed their lawns on Sunday, I now looked down on those who did not share my new perspectives. Though I was self-righteously judging others, I also felt judged by some people for things I did or believed. For instance, while I was living in Honduras attending a charismatic church, I knew that that put me on the wrong side of a line for many in my home church back in New York. Fearing shaming critique and rejection, I masked the truth and sealed off a significant aspect of my life from others. Though I was in relationship with my New York church community, 
The shame that flowed from the lines we had drawn kept us from sharing our lives in fully authentic ways. Whenever I read a new book or heard a new speaker, I would add something else to my list of what true Christians should support with their time, money, actions. I tried to balance and carry this increasing load, but eventually it became impossible. Even I could not stay on the right side of the lines that I had drawn. So I'd come up with a rationalization and adjust the lines so that I could still see myself as a good Christian. In college, I recognized my legalistic self-righteousness, but I mistakenly thought that the legalistic rules were the problem. I viewed the solution as discarding the rules. I had not dug deeply enough. Although my perspectives about what it meant to be a good Christian had changed over the years, my drive to be right and my line drawing had remained constant. I had torn down one house and built another that looked completely different without realizing that both houses had been built on the same flawed foundation. Because both houses were built on the foundation of line drawing, they had similar characteristics, gracelessness, conditional acceptance, fear, lack of transparency, lack of empathy, and self-righteousness. Of course, that wasn't my intent. My intent had been to invite others to embrace the beliefs and practices that mattered to me. Yet in the process, I unintentionally fostered these negative characteristics. The problem was not the content of the lines. It was the act of drawing the lines, and especially the attitude that accompanied it. I now see that the foundation I had built on was a bounded set approach to church. How does a group identify who belongs? One way is to list essential, intrinsic characteristics a person must have to belong. This is called a bounded set. It has a clear boundary line that is static and allows for uniform definition of those who are within the group. Anyone who meets the requirements is considered in. Bounded groups have tendencies towards a sense of superiority and exclusion. The boundary line distinguishes Christians from non-Christians or true Christians from mediocre Christians. The line generally consists of a list of correct beliefs and certain visible behaviors. The legalism of my youth provides a clear example of a bounded approach to church. Yet as my story demonstrates, a church can practice bounded group line drawing in a variety of ways. Boundedness is not limited to legalism. In all that I just described, I operated from a bounded mentality. It was the bounded church foundation that kept turning my Christian houses into houses of judgmentalism. Bounded churches can use a variety of things to draw lines that define insiders from outsiders, including rituals, spiritual experiences, political commitments, activism, attendance, beliefs, behaviors. So to summarize, I drew lines. I saw the problems with them. I thought the problem was legalism, the content of the lines. I now see that the problem was the line drawing itself and the bounded church model that I operated in. All right, so we're going to stop right there <coughs> for today and, uh, and explore some of, of what maybe that, uh, that's all about. Um, as you heard Mark share a little bit, our obsession with line drawing to define identity 
often creates actually deep pain and disconnect with uh, not only the world around us, if we desire to show people God's love, but even within the church uh, itself. Because, uh, because judgmentalism will always um, be the fruit of a line-drawing focus. Um, because it creates this identity of, it creates an identity through differentiating ourselves by looking down on others. And that's inherently selfish. Um, author and pastor Greg Boyd observes that, he says this, he says, judgments only serve the people who make them. They never help the person that's judged. So it doesn't, it doesn't match Jesus' call to love our neighbor. And so what, what ends up happening is that, like, like you just heard, we emphasize rightness over grace and humility. We make it difficult for others to ask really hard, important questions that might challenge our assumptions. And we make it impossible to feel unity unless there is also uniformity. That's what ends up happening. So sure, we can be unified as long as you look like me. All right. And so once again, as we encounter Jesus and look at the community that Jesus formed, clearly Jesus was trying to do something bigger and, and, and different. So what's our solution? Um, I cut this part off because we're going to talk through it ourselves. Mark wonders if to deal with the shame and judgmentalism, maybe we should simply remove all the lines. Right? Maybe that's, that's the answer. But that solution is problematic as well. Uh, because with no belonging and no clarity, there can't be shared values, there can't be shared movement, there can't be shared mission. So everything becomes unspoken and kind of fuzzy. What are we really about? What's it mean to be a part of this? Right? So, so that does not work. People feel like they just don't know where they're headed, and they're not sure if they belong. Um, and there's little accountability in, a, set, in a, a setting like that to actually live in a new way. Right? Um, so Alan Hirsch and Mike Frost, who are... Um, people who write and study about Christian mission. They both live in Australia. They, they tell this story about um, how in the Australian outback, there are these huge herds of cattle, all right, um, everywhere. And, and they have vast amounts of land, and it's, very, it's challenging to keep the herds together. So you've got a couple options on how to keep your herds defined, right? So the first one is what? What? Say it louder. Yeah. Yeah, you build fences. But fences, first of all, they take a massive amount of time and a massive amount of money to be able to pull off, right? Um, it takes constant mending, and it's cost prohibitive. All right. The second option that you can have, oh boy, here we go. Let's see. Um, you got it? Come on. Yeah. Wow. I did not practice that. My list, my list, my list of gifts just keeps growing. I'll tell you what. Um, okay. So you get herd dogs, right? Now the problem with that is number one, number one, it takes constant oversight to know where everybody is at all times. And also, then what you're using is you're using a whole lot of coercion and threats to keep the herd together. Okay? You, you get my parallels so far, right? You're reading this. Okay. Yeah. So in both, where is the focus at locationally? On what? On the boundaries, right. In both of these, the location is on the outs, or the, the focus is what's happening on the outside. 
right? And so in Australia, cattle ranchers, they don't use fences. They don't use dogs. What do they do? They dig deep wells. And when you dig deep wells, then everyone is drawn to the source of life. Okay? And so, so what ends up happening, it just looks like an amoeba, but I don't know actually how to make it more like anything else. Um, so what actually ends up happening is that their cattle stay together because they are constantly drawn back to the center. They're drawn back to where they find life. Okay? And it changes everything because where is the focus? The focus is on the center. And there, it, it doesn't mean that there's no definition at all. But the definition happens through the relationship to the center. So, we just talked about what happens in bounded set approaches. But in centered set approaches, which we are um, encouraging to learn from, then instead of people... Instead of people being in or out based on a boundary, everyone is moving in a direction. And belonging is defined by your relationship and your movement toward the center. This is why Jesus says things like, the sinners and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom in front of you Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, they may have been locationally close to the center if we're going to talk about right behaviors, but their direction was not being drawn toward Jesus. And so others who might be way out here, but who are drawn to move toward Jesus, are in that set of belonging and movement. And all of a sudden, things start to break free and open up. So take a look at this, because there's a, a great example um, in, in the scriptures for a... Um, let's see if it can pop up. There we go. For a, uh, a centered set. So Jesus is teaching in, in Luke 18... Um, and Jesus is teaching in Luke 18, and here's, oh, let me say one thing before I tell this story. Uh, different groups are obviously going to have unique distinctives and values based on how they define the center. Let's just lay that out, okay? And, and that might include some sort of understanding of certain boundaries. However, the emphasis and the focus of the identity of the group is what we're talking about. Is it defined by the lines or is it defined by the center? And that makes all the difference in the world in creating a culture of flourishing. So in, um, in Luke 18, Jesus embodies this in two ways. So first, well, this is the first way, by giving an example of faith. So when Jesus talks to some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else, here's what he says. Two men went to the temple to pray. One Pharisee, so, so, so they're both, you know, at least trying to be on the inside, right? They're going to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself, unpack that later, um, and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I really hope he wasn't within earshot of him, but I think he probably was. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. So he gives one example. But then he says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. Maybe he was out of earshot. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. 
Now, the significance of a story like this is look at how this, um, this first man, the Pharisee, defines faith. He's not actually moving toward God. He's just making a statement to God that defines himself based on comparison to other people. All right? And so, so we actually don't see any movement because he's not thanking God for anything that God is. He thanks God that he's awesome. He thanks God that he's followed all the correct li- lines and rules. And the second time, the second person simply says, God, have mercy. I'm crying out. And there is movement inherent in a statement like that. There is direction. I am drawing to God and trusting God in a new way. First statement, there is no active trust in God. There is no direction that moves toward God. And so Jesus is saying, look, this guy is in the better position. You might think that in all the ways of the world, he looks worse off. But actually, he's better off within his spirit. Okay. So this is so important for us to grasp. All right. This is Jesus giving a real-life example at his time of the problem with line drawing because you might just find yourself on the wrong side of it. The second way that Jesus embodies this is that in the New Testament, Jesus actually positions himself at the center to define Christianity. So he doesn't just say, doesn't just help them understand from a method. He actually puts himself at the center of faith and redefines it for people. So he defines Christianity not as a list of rules to follow and not even as a belief system, but he defines Christianity, or what we would call Christianity, as himself. Relationship with the center. Um, t- take a look at, at what we have here. I mean, look at these words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to me, and I'll give you rest. Centering. John 12, and Jesus is talking about his own, his own life and crucifixion. When I am lifted up to the earth, I will draw all people to myself, right? And then, and then in, in John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. By the way, this has again been used in all sorts of condemning ways, when if you know the context of this passage, Thomas is all worked up and says, I, I, I want to make sure that I know the Father. And Jesus is reassuring him. Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I'm the way to the Father. You know the Father. You know me. That's the point of this passage. Whether, what, regardless of the other implications, we completely often miss when we use this verse, completely miss that Jesus was giving it a reassurance to his disciples who wanted to make sure that they were on the right track. <laughs> um, so, so anyways, oh, and, and of course, the early church believed this as well. Paul writes in Colossians, Jesus, he's talking about Jesus, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him reconcile to himself all things. Jesus, bringing the world right by bringing everyone toward himself. Okay? So do you see how centered? It's not just about ways of approaching belief systems. It's that Jesus particularly positions himself at the center as the source of life. Because when that's correct, the need for drawing the boundary lines that have done so much damage is no longer necessary. And this happens, by the way, in so many of the early books um, of the early church. In, in the book of Galatians, uh, one of Paul's great challenges throughout his missionary work was to um, help the people move away from a judgmental faith where everybody said that if you're going to be a part of the, the church, you've got to look like the Jewish people. Circumcision and all of that. 
And Paul starts to write to him and say, no, 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 you don't understand. Jesus being the center is what matters. And he says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, saying, I'm not going to ever say that I follow all the rules well and use that as my pride. But I will boast in Jesus' self-giving love on the cross, right? Through which the world has been crucified to me. So my desire to live in all the values and ways of the world has been crucified. And I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. And I like this. Peace and mercy, and I'm going to add an emphasis here. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule. (laughs) If you want to be about rules, here's the rule to follow. What counts is the new creation. Moving toward Jesus, finding life. It's beautiful. All right. Um, Christianity is a center-oriented faith that has become, in so many cases, a boundary-oriented faith. But we have a centered-oriented faith. Making fences has not served us well, and it doesn't serve others either. Um, I want to share this a, a, a little quick anecdote uh, before we wrap up um, and have just a few minutes for dialogue. So um, I have an experience with fences and, uh, and cattle. In January, I went for a four-day uh, Silent retreat, prayer retreat that I do, I try to do it every year. I was down in Florida. And um, during that time, I'm alone the whole time, but it's not all silence and it's not all stillness. I spend at least a couple hours a day being very active (laughs) because my body needs to be active. And so I am out birding or I'm out running really long distances or whatever. So I looked on the map and I found that there was this huge ranch called the Carlton Ranch or something like that, that was within a few minutes drive. And so I mapped out a course of like this super long, like 18 mile run that I was going to do. And I didn't really have too much knowledge of the place. It just looked like this abandoned, massive, I knew I wouldn't see anybody, but it was just this huge wasteland. It said ranch, but I didn't actually assume it would have any animals on it because it was so remote. So I'm running and I'm about eight miles in and all of a sudden, my map, we hit all of these, these fences, and my map takes me directly through the middle. But sometimes there's not a gate. So sometimes I'm climbing over fences, and sometimes I'm shimmying under them, because if I take a wrong turn, I have no idea where I'm at. I've only got one route that I have to stick with. I can't bail out early. And all of a sudden, I start encountering a lot of cows. Now, I'm really glad that I'm not talking to a group in Lancaster where I used to pastor because there would be such a lack of respect for me after this little video. But, but I am not comfortable with knowing how to deal with large cows. I don't know their manners or their mannerisms. I don't know what is threatening or not. I just know when it seems like I'm upsetting them. And I had a lot of experiences of feeling like I was upsetting a whole lot of, of cattle during this time. So anyways, I happened to have my phone, which didn't have any service, but because I had been alone for three days, I I recorded a lot of my experience for my kids and my wife, who thought it was a comedy act, which it's not. Um, But I just thought I would show this, and here's why. I'll tell you afterwards why it came to my mind just yesterday as I was finishing up this uh, this message. But um, yeah, apologies for my uh, sweaty, crusty face. Here we go. So I found a safe spot behind this fence but now literally everybody's just milling at me and the one place that I need to go down that road over there 
See that road? Yeah, you see the cows that are on that road blocking me? And they're in every other field too, so I'm really hot. I'm actually in shade, so I'm fine, but I have no idea what to do. And the one cow has horns. <sighs> so anyways, there was more to it than that. I went through an angry herd about a mile earlier that was very upsetting to me. I did eventually find one farmer over the course of 18 miles, and he was like, yeah, they're not going to hurt you. And I was like, but, like, they seem aggressive. But anyways, anyways, the point for me, all right, was that in the middle of all of the fences on my long run, crawling under and over them, I was constantly afraid I would get cornered and hurt if I entered the wrong pasture. I couldn't explore freely myself, and, and those inside each fence system, and the ones that were oddly outside of it that I felt like shouldn't have been, they were all deeply intimidating to me. And this week I was like, oh my goodness, that's how so many people feel when they engage with God's church. It's so scary, it's so intimidating. What's the wrong thing I might say? What's the wrong move I might make? What's going to get me run over? Seriously. As a church, our goal is to find life by moving toward Jesus as our center and expressing everything we do and all the ways we interact with the conviction that this is where we share our identity. Nothing else. That then leads us to something new. Now, honestly, in today's world we have a challenge because simply saying that Jesus is our center is problematic in and of itself, right? Because nearly every church anywhere would argue or say that Jesus is the center. I'm not saying that to posture ourselves against other churches, not by any stretch, but as we know, line drawing can still be very common al along with judgmentalism and arrogance and a lack of grace, even by many people and churches that say Jesus is their center. So we have to go further than simply giving that lip service. We have to figure out what does it mean and what is the character of this Jesus that we want to be centered on, okay? So next week, we're going to look at a story that Jesus tells in Luke 15, and I'm going to let Mark tell it because I'm away for a couple days in the middle of this week, and he'll do a much better job. Um, and so we'll look at a short video where he explains a passage, and then we'll unpack it in understanding that Jesus presents God as a God who also desires a centered understanding more than bounded sets, okay? So we're going to look at that next week. Um, because we have to go further. And then I hope that we have a panel the following week where we explore together practically what does it mean for us to become a church that truly lives out a centered set approach with integrity and love, but also with dynamic life transformation in Christ.